Hello and welcome. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Heather Hample. Heather is a cancer genetic counselor and faculty member in the Division of Human Genetics here at the James. Today, we'll talk with Heather about the history of genetic counseling and how it's saving lives. We'll talk about the 30,000 genes in each and every cell in your body, how they replicate and sometimes create bad copies that lead to cancer, the difference between acquired genetic mutations and hereditary genetic mutations, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 breast cancer mutations, and the Lynch syndrome mutation that causes colon cancer. And we'll talk about the red flags in a family's medical history that would make them a candidate for genetic counseling. Hi, Heather. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. I'm glad you could be here. We're going to learn a lot today about cancer genetics. And let's start off. I'm very curious. What made you decide to go into this field, which has to be a relatively new field because they didn't really know much about genetics till like the 1990s, right? It's a very new field. Actually, um, genetic counseling as a whole started around 1970, um, but it started very much from a prenatal um, genetics background, um, working with pregnant women who were at risk for having um, babies with genetic disorders, either due to family history or age. Um, then pediatric genetic counseling became um, a big component as well, working with children who were having delays and trying to figure out what the diagnosis was. Um, But the idea of adult onset predictive testing is very new um, and really didn't come along until about the mid-90s. And that's because none of the genes had been discovered yet. We just started finding the genes for um, hereditary breast ovarian cancer and the genes for um, Lynch syndrome, which is the hereditary form of colon and uterine cancer, really in the mid-90s. 94, 95 was a big boom for cancer gene discovery. Um, But now, cancer genetic counselors make up about 30 to 40 percent of all practicing genetic counselors in the United States. It's a huge explosion. And that was the time when you were in school, right? The mid-90s. It is. And I'd had this um, love of genetics from my freshman year in high school where I had a teacher in honors biology who just loved genetics and it was contagious. So I knew I wanted to do genetics, but I had always had a a strong interest in cancer, um, motivated uh, a lot by my grandmother passing away a few days before I graduated from high school of cancer. Um, But I didn't know I could combine the two. And so for me, it was such an aha moment when my last internship in graduate school, and this would have been spring of 95, was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which was one of probably two or three places in the U.S. doing cancer genetics at the time. And um, I knew right then and there that was what I wanted to do. It combined all of my interest in one. Um, And this whole idea of um, predictive genetics, which I I love the idea of looking into the crystal ball and, and knowing what you're at risk for, but then having something you can do about it very empowering. Right. We'll definitely get into that with, in particular with Lynch syndrome, which which if you know about it, you can prevent cancer. That's right. So you were really at the forefront of a whole new field of identifying uh, genetic mutations in people and then using that to uh, improve quality of life. Absolutely. And they found the BRCA1 gene six months before I started work, and they found the BRCA2 gene six months after I started work. Wow. And the and the BRCA gene is the breast cancer. It's literally That's the right. BR is for breast and the CA is for cancer. That's absolutely right. A little bit of a misnomer because it also increases the risk for ovarian, prostate, and pancreatic cancer. But those were the two first um, 
genes discovered that could predispose to cancer. And some people call it the BRCA gene, but I've learned from you in the past that that's, that's frowned upon in your profession. The genetics world does not like calling it BRCA. <laughs> yeah. But let's take a step back and explain to everyone what a genetic mutation is, like how it um, occurs and like how often is do people inherit the, the BRCA or the Lynch syndrome? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so we all have genes. We think there's about 30,000 genes in humans. Um, and they come in pairs. You get one from your mom and one from your dad for all 30,000 genes. And for the most part, they work and they're doing important jobs in our body, deciding things like hair color, eye color, height. But as we're starting to learn predispositions to certain diseases. But yeah. there's 30,000 genes in each cell in your Correct. body, right? Okay. Yeah, each cell so of our body has the billions. same, <laughs> same 30,000 genes in okay. every one of our cells. Um, and, and that's a good point because um, mutations happen all the time. And mutations are changes in those genes that make them not work properly. Um, some people think of them as like a spelling error um, that causes the gene not to work properly. And most of the time that doesn't cause a problem. Uh, but what if one cell gets enough mistakes in its genes, it'll uh, start to grow funny, get a growth advantage, not die when it should, and that cell can become a cancer. Um, and that's why they say all cancers are genetic, because if you look in any tumor, there are lots of genetic mutations that are causing that those cells to grow out of control and not die when they should. Most of those mutations, however, just occurred in that person's body during their lifetime, either just due to the natural aging process or environmental exposures, like sun like, damage. Or smoking, smoking exactly. chemicals. Absolutely, all of those things can sun. cause. Yes, those can cause mutations. Um, but frankly, the greatest risk factor for cancer is age. And that's just because with millions of cells in our body dividing every day and having to copy those 30,000 genes, mistakes get made natural part of the aging process. So it's like you're, as you age, your spell checker, which makes these corrections sort of wears out a little or... or it's just more that um, th that's a lot more opportunities for mistakes to happen naturally while your DNA is trying to replicate. And so, so these all are, of the, these are what we would call acquired mutations. Right. They're, you're not born with them. They happen during your lifetime. The fancy word for that is somatic, but it just means that they were acquired during your lifetime and they are not something you were born with and you can't pass them on. So that's most cancer. It turns out, though, that probably 5 to 10% of most can of cancers, um, and sometimes more than that, are actually hereditary. And in those cases, the person is born with a gene that has a mutation in it or a mistake, from which they've inherited from their mom or their dad. So that copy, that gene with the mistake in it, is in every cell of their body from the day they're born. And generally, these are in genes that are good genes. Their natural job is to protect us in some way. Um, all of us would have them, and we'd want them to be working because they're keeping us from getting cancer. Sometimes to my patients, I describe them like the brakes in the car. As long as the gene is working, the brakes stay on, and the cells grow nice and slowly like they're supposed to. Again, dividing when they should and dying when they should. Um, so the interesting thing is that if you inherit a mutation from your mom or your dad in one of these genes, recall that you've got another copy from your other parent, and that one's working fine because it's pretty unusual for two people to happen to get married who both have a hereditary cancer syndrome. So it's extremely unlikely to get two genes that okay. are both mutated. So you've got one copy that is not working from the get-go that you've inherited from your mom or your dad, and your other copy from the other parent is working. So eventually the bad copy is going to do something 
to create cancer. Right. So the bad copy just kind of never works from the beginning. But what happens eventually is that the good copy stops working. Again, just because it acquires a mistake naturally during the aging process or an environmental trigger causes a mistake. But once you lose the second copy, the working copy, now you've got a cell that has no more working copies. Because uh, in, in people with who don't have an inherited mutation, when something goes bad, they, they have got enough, the backup. They have the backup. This person, <laughs> yeah. people with the inherited have no backup. So Correct. eventually, yes. something's going to happen. That's right. And so the odds are just stacked that one day over the years in one of their at-risk cells, they'll acquire that second mistake. We call it in genetics the second hit. And then they've got a cell with no working protective gene. Um, in our break analogy, the brakes come off and that cell starts to grow too fast and becomes the cancer. And that's what cancer basically is, is yep. uncontrolled growth of cells Absolutely. that create tumors that keep growing and mm-hmm. metastasize and travel to other parts of your body and eventually without treatment would be fatal. That's right. And and so we, we explained to our families that have a hereditary cancer syndrome that they're basically born one step closer to getting a cancer because of having that one copy of the gene not working in every cell of their body. And that leads to some of the characteristics that are the hallmarks that we like people to look for to get a sense as to how likely it is that their family history might or might not be hereditary. So what would you ask someone to determine if they're a candidate to have a, a, a inherited genetic mutation? So the first one, as you can imagine, if you're born one step closer to getting cancer, it doesn't take as long on average. So we see earlier ages of diagnosis. So generally our rule of thumb is that any cancer diagnosed under age 50 would be considered an early age of diagnosis, and that might be a red flag that the person's a little bit more likely to have an inherited form of cancer. Certainly there's lots of people with young cancers that aren't hereditary, but it just makes it a little more likely. So we pay a little more attention. It's a red flag. Meaning if if one person in your family got cancer at 35, that's a red flag, but would you then keep going back to siblings, to aunts and uncles, back to grandparents, great-grandparents, and see if there's a pattern? So one early onset is often enough to warrant a genetic counseling session, and, and increasingly that's because we have smaller family sizes today. Um, and people are doing cancer screenings and preventing cancers. And so sometimes the family histories aren't as striking as they used to be. Um, But we do rely on family history a lot, for example, for a patient who's not diagnosed under 50. So say you were diagnosed at 60 with your cancer. Well, it still could be hereditary. But then we have to look at other clues. So the other clues might be, are there multiple individuals on the same side of your family who have the same or related cancers? Um, And so here we would be thinking of families that have both breast and ovarian cancer running in them, or for the other common hereditary cancer syndrome, you might be looking for families that have both colon and endometrial, which is also known as uterine cancer running in them. So the breast people, if you have a lot of breast cancer, that's the BRCA. Correct. If there's a lot of colon, that could be the Lynch syndrome. The Lynch syndrome, that's right. Are those the two most common? They are by far and away the most common inherited forms of cancer. Absolutely. Um, Both of them affect somewhere around one out of 300 individuals in the general public. Um, So they're quite common. Um, and, And so we those are the ones that families are are more likely to have. There are a number of other more rare hereditary cancer syndromes. So if somebody has other cancers in their family and there are too many of them, they still may need to come see us. But those are the, the most common. 
The other thing that is a red flag that the family history might be hereditary is if one person has had more than one cancer themselves. So one in three of us will get cancer during our lifetime. Cancer is pretty common. But when one person gets two different cancers, that's starting to make you think that there might be an underlying susceptibility. The odds of somebody just by accident getting two different unrelated cancers are pretty low. So when we see a single individual with two different cancers, that's another red flag. And here we have to be careful because I mean unrelated cancers. So often cancers will spread, as you mentioned, to other organs. So the colon cancers like to spread to the liver, for example. or They're, they're related. They are. It's okay. that, That's the colon cancer having metastasized to the liver. So it's really the same cancer spreading. What we're talking about here are two unrelated cancers. And so it, it could be someone who gets a colon cancer at 35, um, removes that part of their colon, and 10 years later at 45 gets a second whole new colon cancer. And so these are the these two, we call it primary cancers, is a red flag that the, the person may have a hereditary cancer syndrome. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Heather Hample. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Heather Hample, and we're talking about some of the red flags that could indicate that someone has a hereditary cancer syndrome. So when you have all these red flags mm-hmm. and, and, and you're thinking that, yes, there's a possibility that this person has a hereditary cancer mutation, what do you do? How do you then literally test them to find mutations. It's become so much more um, easy and accessible. Um, What those families should do is talk to their doctors about getting a referral to CS and cancer genetics or to see their local cancer genetic counselor. Um, If they're somewhere not in Columbus, they can look at the website for the National Society of Genetic Counselors at nsgc.org, and there's a Find a Counselor button, and you could literally can put in your city and state and check that you're looking for a cancer counselor, and they'll give you a list, but you need to get referred over. And what we'll do in cancer genetics is we'll take a what we call a three-generation family tree. So we'll take a lot of family history information about children, siblings, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents. And there we're looking for these patterns that tell us whether it's more or less likely that a family history is hereditary. We can even use models that will give people a percentage chance that their family history might be hereditary. And we can talk about um, the risks, benefits, and limitations of genetic testing. And if the person is interested in at high enough risk that they decide to pursue genetic testing, it's generally done the same day using either a blood sample or saliva. Now, for patients who are averse to needles or a tough blood draw, they can actually spit in a tube, and we can get enough DNA from the spit to do the genetic testing. And the cost has come down substantially. At its heyday, the BRCA1 and 2 
jeans because there was a patent on them, which is a little bit controversial, and there was no competition. It was over $4,000 to test just BRCA1 and BRCA2 around 2015. And Um, your insurance may or may not have covered it. Correct. Um, We do fairly good with coverage, but you certainly have to meet criteria. Um, But even if you owed 20% of $4,000, that's pretty expensive and, and was a barrier for a lot of people to getting testing. Uh, The Supreme Court overturned that patent, which introduced competition, and that's always a good thing. So that's driven down the cost, but also new technology has been developed. Um, So there's a new technology called next-generation sequencing that allows us to test multiple cancer genes at the same time for much lower cost. So that now there are labs that literally have patient pay prices as low as $250 to $475 for panels of 30 to 80 genes that are involved in cancer. Meaning they're looking they they're looking for 30 to 80 different genes mutations not, not or, mutations or genes, no. yes. and that will show the mutations right by, so there could be thousands of mutations in these 30 to 80 genes but for uh, just for comparison when we were doing BRCA1 and 2 that was two genes for $4000 and I can now do 80 genes for 400 so if someone is found to have the BRCA1 or 2 mm-hmm. what does that then mean as your as their genetic counselor what are their options what do they then do for the rest of their lives yeah so we get results back in about two to three weeks and um, we do our results disclosures over the phone now we used to do them in person but we just the volume we had to start doing them over the phone but we've prepared people generally at that pre-test counseling session for the results um, so that if they test positive we will know their exact cancer risks so we can talk to them about what their lifetime risks are for cancer given this mutation would that be a percentage where you, okay, mm-hmm. so okay Yeah. So um, the general public, for example, has a 13 percent lifetime risk for breast cancer. Women do. It can be somewhere between 60 and 85 percent for a woman with a mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes. Similarly, though, ovarian cancer risk, one and a half percent in the general public, as high as 44, 45 percent for women with BRCA1 mutations. I I think that's an important point that I think most people hear the BRCA gene, they think just breast cancer, but it's also a variant. That's right. And increasingly, we're learning it it, um, leads to risks for pancreatic and prostate cancer. So many men have thought historically they didn't really need to worry if there was breast cancer in their family, um, that it wouldn't affect them. Um, But not only can men actually get breast cancer, but these risks for prostate and pancreatic cancer are very relevant for men in these families. So it's important for it, it, for a man, if there's a, a, a lot of breast cancer in your family, you may want to get tested too. Absolutely. Because your risk for uh, pancreatic and prostate is up. Yes, and these men may have daughters themselves right. who would potentially then have the high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. So these syndromes affect both men and women, and um, certainly their cancer risk may be different, um, but they can pass them on equally. And most of these syndromes are what we call dominant, which means that if you have a mutation in one of these genes, your children each have a 50% chance that they will inherit it as well, and an equal 50% chance that they won't. But that becomes very powerful because we can tell people who got it and needs the increased screening 
which we haven't talked about yet, but we'll talk about that, um, and who didn't inherit it. And if you have a family history that is explained by one of these mutations, and we can tell you definitively that you did not inherit that mutation, your risk goes back down to the general population risk, and you can follow the American Cancer Society screening recommendations, mammograms at 40 once a year, regular gynecologic care, no surgeries to try and intervene and reduce the risk for ovarian cancer. It's very powerful. So someone who does have the mutation, and I know there's no one exact recipe, but they're going to get increased screenings? Correct. Correct. And depending on the syndrome, um, it could be, so for breast cancer, we might be starting them with breast MRIs instead of mammograms as early as age 25. We might then add the mammograms around age 30, and we might alternate those every six months, hoping that we would catch any interval cancers that develop instead of waiting a year between screening for a higher risk person. The MRI also can look at through dense breast tissue in young women a little bit better than the mammogram. Um, but that's quite a bit more screening than the general public, which might start mammograms at 40 and go once a year. Um, for uh, other syndromes like Lynch syndrome, where we've got a colon cancer risk, we might start colonoscopies or the screening procedure to go in and look at the colon and remove any polyps before they can become a cancer. Patients with Lynch syndrome actually start doing colonoscopies every one to two years around age 20 to 25. As opposed to 50. 50. And, um, and the general population only goes once every 10 years. But for individuals with Lynch syndrome, it's every one to two. So much more intensive surveillance, but we have a lot of good data that we can either prevent the cancers entirely or catch them early when they're treatable, which leads to much better outcomes. For some cancers um, where there's not a good screening test, like ovarian cancer, uh, the recommendation is actually to remove the ovaries and fallopian tubes once they're done having children, of course, to try and prevent that cancer, um, just because there's not a good screening test. Okay. Wow. That was a good segue to the Lynch syndrome. And we're not going to talk about it today, but soon we're going to talk about the, oh, I always mess up the, the name of this, the Ohio colorectal Cancer, Cancer Prevention, Prevention Initiative, OCCPI. You got it. Okay. And this was a statewide Lynch syndrome screening program funded by Pelotonia that Heather ran. It's a it's really a cutting edge program that could become a national model. We'll talk about that on a future podcast and how it's literally identifying people with this syndrome and saving, preventing people from ever getting colon cancer, which in turn is improving quality of life and saving lives. Absolutely. So just as a quick uh, intro, how many people have you tested and roughly and how many of you found to have this here in Ohio? We have tested over 3,300 colon cancer patients from around the state of Ohio, and we have over 150 with Lynch syndrome and an additional 75 with other hereditary cancer syndromes. Now that we have these broader panel gene tests that we talked about earlier in this podcast. Oh, because when you test them, you we, don't just test them for, for Lynch, you look for the 80. Yeah, so we sometimes found BRCA1 and BRCA2, things we weren't expecting. Wow. So as someone who was at the forefront, the beginning of, of cancer genetic counseling and testing, what's it been like to see the increase? Because like you said, there was only two or three programs back then. Now it's everywhere. Now Ohio State has one of the largest cancer genetic counseling programs in the country. What's it meant to you personally and to the, the whole war on cancer? 
it's um, it's been nothing short of remarkable. I, I if you had asked me in 1995, uh, could we test 80 genes for four hundred dollars? I would have laughed. Um, it, it's laughed or cried. I, I cry, probably <laughs> cried yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> because it, it was so cost prohibitive yeah. and because um, you knew that you could do more. Yes, if, but money was the money was, was the a, object. A big yeah. big obstacle. There were fears back then about insurance discrimination, and we now have laws in place that protect our patients from having to worry about losing their health insurance if they would test positive for one of these genes. Oh, or getting fired. Exactly. Or, yeah. Employment issues. Um, because could this have been considered a pre-existing condition? Uh, literally, we had patients test using pseudonyms in their mid-90s and pay cash out of pocket because they were so afraid of insurance discrimination. Um, it's really been a 180 degree change. Um, all of my patients test using their name now. We, we kept secret shadow charts in genetics for many, many years. And now it's we're part of the regular medical record. Of course, no one's going to do a preventive surgery on a patient unless they know that they have one of these mutations that puts them at high risk. Um, and so we're very much, um, it, it, it's all... Um, safe now and commonplace. And I think the only thing that makes me sad now is that not enough patients are availing themselves of the technology. I think the, 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 the general public is less aware that this exists and the power of it. Um, and that's one of the things I'd like to work on improving moving forward. So that's the key now. The technology is there. Mm-hmm. Now we need to catch up in terms of people uh, knowing about it and wanting to yes. make sure that that they're tested if, yeah. if appropriate. Wow. Um, you know, there are. I, I had a session with a, a woman and her daughter. Um, it was we were doing genetic counseling for Lynch syndrome, and I could tell the mom was uh, her body language. She was not happy about the whole thing. Um, but I spend a lot of time when I'm talking about colonoscopies explaining how it can prevent a cancer from developing in the first place. And I noticed her body language changed after that. She became much more friendly. The daughter ended up testing positive. I asked her at some point, you know, it seemed like you weren't that enthusiastic about your daughter getting tested at the beginning, but you've really come around. What's changed? And she said, I did not know that you could prevent colon cancer. And I thought, why in the world Would my poor daughter want the burden of knowing she had this gene that gave her this high risk for cancer if there was nothing she could do about it? And so this simple fact that us in healthcare realize, which is that colonoscopy can prevent colon cancer, and we just have to start it early enough and do it frequently enough, is not known by the general population. And it changed everything for that family. But how many of those individuals never come to see me in the first place? Right. They see it as a ticking time bomb. Exactly. But we can diffuse, you can diffuse the time bomb through colonoscopies. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the OCCPI, but that's a great point that knowing you have the Lynch syndrome and getting the proper screenings, you can prevent yourself from ever getting cancer, which is amazing. It is. That's pretty cool. Okay. Well, thank you, Heather. That was great for filling us in on on cancer genetics and screenings, and I appreciate you coming. Thanks for having me. And in our next podcast, or one of our next podcasts, Heather will be back, and we're going to dive deeper into the Ohio Colorectal Cancer Preventative Initiative. Oh, I got it right that time. And it's just, it's, this is just such a cool example of, of how proactive genetic screening can identify people with an inherited genetic mutation and prevent them from ever getting cancer. So I look forward to that, and we'll have you back soon. And this podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. 
more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.